Alright, welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James, this is Pete. Hey everyone. It is episode 114 and it's the 18th of June and we've got a big show for you guys and also a new show for you guys because we're now live on YouTube mm. as well. We've got cameras, that's my camera. I'm waving at it. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, we're now YouTube stars, I reckon. Yeah, Can't I think too so. Far away. The YouTubers, they say. All YouTubers, mm-hmm. content creators. Uh, I reckon that's us now. So that's pretty cool. So uh, yeah, for people out there who've been listening to the show through their phones and they've always thought it'd be a whole lot better for them and easier for them if the podcast was on YouTube. Yeah. You're in luck. It is now on YouTube. So go over to the Institute of Public Affairs YouTube channel and subscribe and you can get all of the shows on Tuesdays when they come out. Yeah, I wonder what these knuckleheads look like, <laughs> yeah. you might think. Yeah, well, uh, we've had some feedback already because last week's show did That's get right. on uh, YouTube and the only comment about the show specifically was that mm. I should get a haircut. Yep. So start watching the show, get on to my hair. And uh, just, you know, some positive, some negative comments. We'll just see what the mood of the street is. Tell us what you think. Now, the other thing which is uh, new about this show is mystery guests. So usually I introduce the guests at the start of the show. This yeah. week, uh, I still maintain some hope that uh, we'll get back to uh, this mystery guest. We'll get back to us. Yeah, I've got, I've got faith. I've got faith. I've got faith as well, uh, which is cool because halfway through this intro, if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening, we might get the text to say that the mystery guest is on. Mm. So... That'll be a great moment for us all. That's right. We're sort of trying to organise it. The time that the interview is meant to happen has passed. Yes. But we're hoping it'll still come through. Yes. Uh, but we've got a really, really great uh, bunch of interviews still over from the Freeman Conference, right. which we've been playing over the last few weeks. So we'll play one of those. Probably the Matt Gibby one, because that was a really great talk. Uh, Matt Gibby from Free the People. And uh, that's going to be really interesting to listen to. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so let's get into some of the stories. And Kurt. And Kurt, we're also talking to Kurt. That's definitely locked in because we did it. He has to, he works here. And he has to. Uh, So Kurt Wallace talking about his latest report into regulatory dark matter and also about stamp duty. Did I get it right that time? That's right. You'll stick around and you'll figure out why I find that so hard. But anyway, Mm. uh, so there's that as well. All right, so let's get into some main stories. And I guess the big story uh, in Australia this week, uh, or certainly today, would probably be the free speech on campus, where that's at. That's right. Very big story. One of the key things about this story which really pleased me is I finally worked out the difference between what a chancellor is and what a vice chancellor is. Yeah. Because it always that wasn't like, that wasn't inherently like you didn't think chancellors were above vice chancellors. Well, it's one feels, of them's got vice in. It feels like the vice chancellor is more powerful. Do you watch interviews with Donald Trump and Mike Pence? Go, which one's the president? <laughs> no, <laughs> which I don't. One's the big guy. But I know what the role of president is versus the role of vice president. And in that scenario, the vice president is less powerful than the president. Yeah. But at Universities, it seems like vice chancellors are slightly more p- powerful. They're like CEOs right. and chancellors like chairman. Anyway, whatever. The Australia's university chancellors had a meeting last month where they endorsed the free speech model for campuses proposed by former High Court Chief Justice Robert French, uh, trumping the objections of the vice chancellors and Universities Australia, which is the sector's main representative body. Mr French, the guy who did the review, said the decision was made to approve the model code in principle. Now, that was uh, the code that was recommended was that it should override university, uh, the free speech code should override university administrative policies and codes of conduct and ensure that lawful freedom of speech was a paramount value. Now, of course, this was a big issue by the IPA that we've been pushing for a number of months, uh, in particular Matthew Lesh, who's missed us, uh, who's, sorry, left us. So, you know, chopped liver. But adjunct fellow. Yeah, an adjunct fellow, yeah. yeah. Sort of like the worst kind of fellow. 
but still a fellow, right. nonetheless. Um, <laughs> he said it, not me, Matthew. Yeah, no, I hope you're listening, Matt. So he, he was the front page of the odds this week, uh, and, he's, and he made the point that unis will lose their best students if they don't in, uh, implement these policies about free speech, which I think is probably true. Yeah, because uh, when the French Review initially came out, the vice-chancellors were... Uh, you know, half and half whether or not it was a problem or whether mm. or not it was welcome. It did seem to be like it wasn't going to be the big victory for freedom of speech that we all hoped the French Review would be. But the Chancellor's coming out unanimously saying that they will take it on is a very good sign for freedom of speech. Absolutely. And I think that hopefully the market will survive, uh, decide because, yeah. you know, if you can't... It's clearly university is going to be better if there's open and robust debate and all those things You know, that's really going to attract the best students. It's going to be a better university. And in the end, I think if... You know, some universities adopt it and some universities don't. The ones that adopt it will get better students and they'll all adopt it. Yeah, and That's then, how the market uh, works, folks. Yes. <laughs> Marketing 101 with Peter Gregory. Uh, the other part of it is there's so many other uh, crackdowns that come from um, students as well. So you just hope that with if the university chancellors and university uh, staff get around freedom of speech, then hopefully that will go down to students mm. also being a bit more accepting of other voices on campus. Cultural change. Yes. Uh, I'm going to turn my phone over. I'm so like keen for the mystery guest to get back to us that every time my phone lights up, I just get distracted. And I'm like, what am I talking about again? And but It's know, hard. It is hard. All right. Uh, now, the other big story in Australia this week is uh, the crackdown on fans celebrating. Now, I thought this might be a bit too Melbourne-focused, hmm. but now it's getting into the front page of the Australian. People are talking about it in rugby states. So it is becoming quite the big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you don't know what's happening, so for the last few weeks... At AFL games, there's been these things called behavioural awareness officers that have been going around and, you know, cracking down on fans uh, saying some pretty, you know, unsightly things, but it's now starting to get out into a bit of a wider situation yeah. where it's now fans just barracking too loudly. I mean, we featured the story the other week of a Carlton fan being ejected from the MCG for calling an umpire a bald-headed flog. Mm. That's gone. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there was all this footage over the weekend of security guards just walking up and down, just looking yeah. for people that are uh, barracking too loudly. And the AFL then comes out and says it's not a crackdown or it is a crackdown, uh, leading to... Uh, anyway, uh, I want to get Peter Gregory. You're mm-hmm. a man that enjoys the football. You enjoy going to the football. Do I ever? Uh, I don't not this use, season so much. Not this season. Uh, Melbourne do stink. Uh, but like I reckon we'll still make the finals. Uh, that's, how was We're that getting not, How was that not the lead? Anyway, <laughs> uh, Pete, what, what have you seen? Is this a crackdown? Well, I look... The, th- the big difference is, you know, it's always been you can't be homophobic and you can't be racist and that's absolutely true and that's perfect and yeah, that's good. Yeah, we cool. don't want that at the footy. But they're literally telling people off for barracking too loudly or yeah. standing up or booing, you know, booing. And it's like, it's a massive thing. And in Victoria, and I know we're talking to a national audience and even an international audience, you might be thinking, you know, what's all the fuss about? But football is so big, particularly in Victoria, also Western Australia and South Australia. Yep. But if, you know, people, you know, will pay their sin taxes, they'll pay 500 bucks for a ciggy, They'll, you know, they're not allowed to drink in the street. They'll accept all of that. You know, Australians will accept, accept the nanny state. It's quite clear. But when you mess with footy, they shouldn't. But they shouldn't and maybe increasingly they won't. But when you mess with footy in Victoria, people get up in arms. And that's what this is. This is just the extension of the nanny state into how people support their football teams. Yeah. And the thing for me is, like, it's absolutely going to lead to a fight down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, some. A uh, fan of a team is going to see his team concede five goals in uh, a very short succession of time, yeah, which is well, a, a Richmond special this year. Uh, and they're going to start booing and they're going to be tapped on the shoulder. And the last thing they're going to want to see when they turn around is a behavioural awareness officer or whatever that name is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- I can see this getting quite ugly. Well, ironically, at the end of this game where they appeared on the weekend, there was a punch on. There was a punch <laughs> so on. It didn't work. See, I, I'm right. I'm right <laughs> even when I don't think I'm right. Uh, yeah. 
And so Gil McLaughlin's got a press conference today. It's going to be yeah. interesting to see what he says and then what's going to happen this weekend. I mean, even if he does come out and say we're going to reaffir- like you know, restate how we do things, all you need is like one security officer to just go a bit overboard mm. and suddenly it's all back on. Uh, leading to one of the best clips I've ever seen, which is a security officer trying to break up Jack Siebel and a bloke he was That's playing right. against on the weekend. Like an on-field uh, you know, wrestling match, a, a security guard comes over and attempts to stop that in the middle of a game. Yeah. Uh, very funny. And the, the, the emergency umpire's like, you're not allowed out in here, You mate. are not allowed out here. Why is that umpire there? We nearly had one of the greatest videos in history. Which yeah, exactly. An AFL football player turn around and just go, can you please get off? Yeah, me? yeah. We, oh, they both take the security guard. But yeah. um, no, look, that's true. I think, look, the AFL, we shouldn't be surprised this has happened. The AFL went from in the 90s being like this or forever really being this organisation that was kind of a place where all the community could come together and have a bit of unity to a very radical position. You know, like we talk about Indigenous Round, which is a great idea. It's good to honour Indigenous people in the game. But in the, in the process of having Indigenous Round, they're flogging a treaty. Oh, that's a pretty radical position. Yeah. And this is just an extension of that. You know, the idea that, you know, you can't boo the umpire because this is their workplace. Yeah. And that's, you know... Yeah, I, I come back to my counteroffer is that umpires can then boo their fans at the, yeah. uh, the fans at their workplace. Well, that's true as yeah. well. And look, maybe that's the answer. But This is the answer in front of the table. It's on the table for everyone involved. Yeah. We should be doing that. That's right. So we shouldn't be surprised that the, the AFL is adopting this extreme radical position because they've got form. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, okay, we'll move on to another story. This one, let's get a bit global here. And, <laughs> we're uh, nothing if not global. We're nothing if not global. So last week we talked about the Hong Kong protests mm-hmm. and everything that was going down. There's been some updates, Pete. Yeah, exactly right. So I was going to say actually during my spiel about the AFL that the AFL is our Hong Kong, really, in, in Victoria. Unpack that one. So what is going on in Hong Kong is yep. there is a massive protest, as we know. We talked about it last week, about the extra, extradition bill to China. They wanted to introduce a law where you could be extradited from Hong Kong to China. That was obviously a huge issue for people from Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, and a, a bad you know, a bad thing to happen for all the political dissidents that have mm. gone from China to Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to end up in China's legal system. So that that's a huge thing for them. And we've seen the protests continue during the week. And actually their executive, they call their leader, the chief executive, um, has announced a suspension of the bill. So the bill will uh, is being suspended, but it hasn't been ruled out completely. So the chief, chief executive, Miss Lam, has agreed to suspend the bill, but activist spirit could be reintroduced later. They're also asking for... Yeah, it is a classic politician move to just go, look, we're putting the bill on ice, but we are going to bring it back when you're not looking. That's right, exactly. Well, they, I think they are looking, yeah. but um, <laughs> they, they want her to resign as well. So they talked about during the week that the, the protest was as big as 2 million people in a city of only 7 million. So that's mm. pretty incredible. Uh, Have you seen those time lapses on Reddit? I've seen the odd times. Yeah, yeah, man, they're all over the internet. Check it out. Yeah. Um, so, and I should make a really important point here because this appeared on Tim Wilson, uh, Tim Wilson's Facebook page during the week in 2017. Yeah, this the, is good. The, <laughs> that's good. Thank you. The Same Turnbull life. government under the coalition, uh, the coalition government under Turnbull tried to ratify an extradition treaty with Beijing and Tim Wilson, who I mentioned, and James Patterson and Andrew Hasty, all friends of the show, in addition with Jonathan Duniam, who's not a friend of the show at this point, but maybe uh, in the future. In future. Uh, Defeated the bill. So we would have had it in Australia in 2017 if it weren't for these people. Yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, you know, pretty terrifying to think about. But, you know, so good on to all of them for sticking up for freedom. Oh, look, it's a great job. And look, and this, you know, this is a win, this suspension, but it's only a cautious win. You know, we don't, don't know what's going to happen. And doing, and, and you could, you're seeing the violence that's taken place and the way the police have treated the protesters. There's aspects of China's authoritarianism potentially already creeping in. Yeah, absolutely. My question is what's going to happen? Because this... this joint declaration that they've signed between 
the UK, uh, between Hong Kong and China runs out in, 19, in 2047. So the idea that they'll retain all the old civil liberties runs out in 2047. So what's going to happen then? Well... Well, it's well, a question without notice. So, yeah, it's a question without notice, and I haven't really looked into my crystal ball. But all I know is that if this podcast is still going on, which I hope it will be in twenty forty seven, twenty eight years, twenty eight more years of this. Twenty eight. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna qualify every on. week, every week, every day, really. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what happens. We'll come to you live when that decision goes down. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's a, you know that's uh, something good for freedom. I guess would be the suspension of the bill. Something bad for freedom is what's been happening with Joe Brand over in the UK. Mm -hmm. Now, if you haven't been catching up with this one, so Joe Brand is like an English comedian. She's on that BBC talking panel show circuit, on QI a lot if you watch that. Um, And she's on one of these panels, this like Radio 4 program called Heresy. And uh, the topic of like the milkshake thing comes up, you know, like how uh, Nigel Farage got pelted with a milkshake. Uh, And maybe Joe Brand was listening to our show when she started off with this rant because she went on saying you shouldn't throw milkshakes at politicians, which Mm -hmm. we were saying. Like, you know, I thought dairy was gone. Dairy was back as a political missile. Uh, So Joe Brand says don't throw milkshakes, but then she qualifies it saying when battery acid will do. So... Not, not, we didn't say that, did we? We didn't say that. Part. Okay, that's good. No, that's good. Uh, not not the best joke in the world. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't even like intentionally destroy her setting up. It was just not a very well delivered joke or structured mm-hmm. joke. Anyway, she said it live on air. Gets okay. a big laugh from the audience, which is a bit weird. Lols. Um, but so and that should be the end of it. Is like that's a bad joke. Yeah. Come on, Joe. You're better than that. Come Unfortunately, on, the police got involved. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, the oh, police have got involved. The police released, uh, received an allegation of incitement to violence relating to Joe Brand's comments. Yeah. Now, Joe Brand immediately says, I'm not saying I'll do it, I'll never do it. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, Joe Brand is not someone that, uh, you know, you would think would start throwing battery acid at people. So she says that in the show. She says that in the show immediately afterwards, but still the police get incitement to violence uh, and they look into it. They decide there's nothing more to answer and they go away, but still the fact that the word the police comes into the story at all is terrifying. Yeah, exactly. And uh, a whole lot of comedians got around Joe Brand and said, you know, we shouldn't be policing jokes. It shouldn't be like oh. this at all. Oh, now you Which care. is good. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, where was that with Count Dankula? Yeah, exactly. Would be my question. Well, he got, because he, she got off, didn't she? She got completely off. So, the police are not looking into it. And Count Dankula got fined 800 quid, I yeah. believe. So, British pounds as well, which British is. British pounds, which is a lot. It's considerably more. So, I think the lesson that I got from this story, Pete, mm-hmm. is that you can only really say offensive jokes if the BBC like you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously completely hypocritical. Yeah. Everyone laughs along, ha, 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 bas- Patri Acid, but yep. like a dog doing a Nazi salute. Yeah, is... uh, on someone's account that no one knows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so obviously the hypocri- hypocritical aspect of that, I like you think you shouldn't get in trouble for this, right? Yeah. Obviously not at all. And the thing is about this incitement of violence, it's like what the argument is, oh, someone out there is going to get the idea that they can throw battery acid at a politician. They've already had that idea. Yeah, exactly. There's chicos out there. I also like the idea that like, because New York Times ran that article talking about the kid that got radicalised by Ben Shapiro and all these other people. Yeah. Imagine someone getting radicalised by Joe Brand. Yeah. Imagine like Joe Brand was a reason you got into extremist politics. Yeah, I started the terrorist group because of that. <laughs> because of... Heresy on BBC4. Yeah, because of uh, QI mainstay Joe Brand. That was what really pushed me over the edge. Yeah, she's just very persuasive. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, I'm glad talk, you got off. Yeah, uh, let's talk net neutrality. Well, I'm glad we're talking net neutrality because I believe, as I've, I think I've said on this show before, I'm Australia's foremost expert on net neutrality. You've definitely said it off air, loudly yeah. and aggressively. Because I Googled about it in 2014 and wrote an awesome IPA article, if I don't, IPA review article, if I 
do so so myself. Actually, there's a funny side story about the, that IPA review article. Right, well, okay, let me let me write this down. Funny side story. I couldn't find it on the internet. I wanted to look at it a couple of weeks ago, and I googled it, and it was in an edition of How to Write Well as a bad example of how to write well. <laughs> I've shown you that before, haven't I? I'll show it to you later. You actually have shown me it's, it's there, There's all these bits. And they're like, this is an example of a terrible writing. I'm like, that, that, that is, is great. The, the bit that they took out was awesome. That is an all-time selection. Anyway, <laughs> we'll have is, to see. That is my favorite. That's my favorite fun fact about Pete. <laughs> yeah, I'll send that round to the gang. That's, uh, such, a, that's such a day ruiner. It's just like Googling your own article and yeah. finding out it's like... <laughs> oh, here it is. Someone's quoted it in a book yeah. oh, about writing as a bad example. Yeah, anyway, well, that happened. At least you're a good podcast host. Well, t- to be honest, it was a great article and they didn't know what they were talking about. So I don't, I'm not worried. Anyway, I wrote this piece about net let's, neutrality. Let's talk about net neutrality. Yeah, okay. So net neutrality, what net neutrality is, is this idea that ISPs, internet service providers, should be regulated because if they're not, they'll provide superior service to rich people and superior service to um, their clients and not the rest of the internet. So the idea that if, you know, if you're an ISP and your client is CNN, right, you might give them awesome service, but you would give terrible service to their competitors. Okay, which is which is no evidence of that ever happening, but that's the argument. Um, it's sort of predicated on this idea that everything on the internet's equally good, which is you know a bit there's, of a stretch. There's some things that are better than others. Yeah, yeah. I mean controversial, but yeah. you know that's the thing. Anyway, so Obama stepped in to regulate this uh, because you know that was a terrible thing that might happen, but never actually did. The Federal Communications Commission repealed those Obama laws last year, and there was this massive outcry about how oh, you know. The internet's dead. Yeah, it was incredible. Some of the claims that were made. It was like, oh, the end of the end of the internet as we know it. Attack on the LGBTQ community. An attempt to silence marginalised people um, by cut, uh, oh, and cutting off access to reproductive rights from the ACLU, CNN, Bernie Sanders, and then the big hitters, Alyssa Milano and Sure. Yeah, all chimed in mm. on this. What, what's that? Sure. Is it? Is, is it not? Sure. Oh, oh what? Come on. Anyway, let's keep going. And I think old mate John Oliver was all over this, which The other is, side of that is, do you reckon they actually believe any of that stuff or are they just trying to they don't know whip up is. a frenzy? They don't know what it yeah, is. If you genuinely thought net neutrality was the one thing holding back people from, you know, hating the LGBTIQ community, yeah. then you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely not it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so what actually happened was, so they've done a story about this a year later on, internet sc- speeds have increased by 40% in the United States. Uh, there's been a record number of broadband deployment in US homes uh, and investment has continued to grow. So actually the internet is more accessible to more people and yep. is better. Is it better? Well, it's quicker. Yeah, it's quicker. Let's go. The <laughs> service is better. The content, who knows? Yeah, but it, the internet can be a bit of a race to the bottom, but yep. you know, it's quicker. Yeah, it's definitely quicker. We're getting to that bottom a lot faster than we used to be. That's doing. right. Uh, all right, so that is the stories we want to cover this week. Uh, so over at ipa.org.au, we've got a whole bunch of articles that you can read. Presuming I can find them. So now that we're filming, you can't yeah, do see, stuff like now, this. It's, it's such a higher bar that we're setting for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, so, interesting. We're going to have to start getting better, Pete. Oh, I want, I want you to write sounds... that in post-show notes. Mark, you're over there. Your post-show notes. Get better. Uh, all right. Sorry. We've got a few, few articles for you guys to read. So, Kurt Wallace, we're going to be talking to him later in the show. Uh, he's written an article for The Spectator Australia, basically, basically explaining the regulatory dark matter mm. thing. So, if you listen to his interview later in the show, you're still a bit in the dark. Maybe Pete and oh. I didn't ask the right questions. Oh. Yep, I got that. Uh, maybe Pete and I didn't ask the right questions. Make sure you're going over to his op-ed and you can read it. Uh, and there's also Daniel Wilde's media release about the Adani project and talking about how uh, this just shows how many different delays there are because of all the approvals that need to be made. So it really shows Australia's red tape problem. Uh, and you've also got the Looking Forward podcast. Now, 
Looking Forward podcast have a huge interview this Friday. Massive. Uh, they are going to be interviewing Dr. Peter Ridd. Uh, he's in the studio for a full hour talking about his legal case with JCU, all of the issues that it raises for freedom of speech on campus. The Riddler. Uh, <laughs> and all of the, what, like, basically what the legacy of what he's gone through will be. Is this a good sign for freedom of speech uh, in campus for Australian University or are things going to get worse? Sorry, it's a really awesome interview. I was lucky enough to be pressing the buttons for it. You can watch that uh, on YouTube and you can also listen to it when it comes out this Friday on the Looking Forward podcast. And you can also uh, subscribe to the Looking Forward podcast for all of their other episodes. They've got one coming out tomorrow and then they had last week uh talking about all of the uh abc raids on journalists and you know what constitutes a state secret what should journalists be able to report on freely so if you are interested in all that make sure you're going over and listening to looking forward all right uh that is it for the start we now go to our interviews with mystery guest slash matt kibbe <laughs> they'll know we don't right now but when you have this show in your phone mm. and on youtube you'll know yeah but right now who's to say still nothing uh mark do you have any confidence this is, is it got back to you? No, I have a little bit of faith. You have a little bit of faith? faith. I still have total faith. I've got overall faith. I've got overall faith. It just might not be all the time this episode. Goes yeah, out. fair enough. And then we've got Kurt Wallace as well. So that one definitely uh, that's going ahead. So that's going to be really good. Uh, yeah, so available on YouTube if you want to watch these podcasts instead of listen to them. And if you don't want to listen to them, they're available on all good podcast apps. Uh, make sure you're telling your friends and family if they if you think they'd like to listen to the show. Make sure you're telling them all about that. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts or iTunes, make sure you're leaving us a five-star review and a comment for the show. It really helps us bring the show to more people. Uh, yeah. And tell your mates. Do tell your mates. All right. And if you're not already a member of the IPA and you do want to become a member and you want to support Australia's Voice of Freedom, uh, go to ipa.org.au slash join. There's three different membership packages you can sign up for, so make sure you're doing that. If you are already a member, there's also options to donate. I mean, uh, the end of financial year is coming up, so you can make a tax-deductible donation to support the IPA research. I All thought right. Burge was going to do this bit. Uh, yeah, but I never gave him scripts. I realised that halfway through the show, so I thought, you know what, instead of throwing him under the bus, mm. I'll wear it. Maybe next week. Thanks for uh, that, James. Yeah, but next week, yes, you will be doing this because uh, I've been talking for four minutes straight and I'm running out of breath. All right, uh, let's go to mystery interview cool okay we're now joined by matt kibbe here at the als freedom conference now matt you are the uh, ceo i guess of uh, free the people and you're here giving a keynote lecture on love liberty and happiness now this is going to go out after your lecture so you're not going to be spoiling anything but why are those three concepts intertwined to you you know, we libertarians spend a lot of time raging against the government machine and all of the abuses and horrors that happen when you centralize too much power, but we've, sometimes we forget to tell the beautiful story of liberty, the, the beautiful things that happen when people are, are left free. So the, the title of our talk, which I'm, which I'm doing with my wife, Terry, she's actually the CEO of Free the People, and I'm the, the president. She's, she's literally my boss in, in every aspect of my life. <laughs> But uh, we, we, we tell... It's good to keep consistency like yeah. that. Sorry. Yeah. That, yeah. So I don't have to think about it anymore. It's just the way it is. But uh, we, we, we started doing this, this joint talk uh, called Love, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. And the idea is to tell personal stories about our life, um, you know, debates we had about whether or not we should get married because, um, you know, government license seems to sort of undermine the, the, the value of a personal relationship from a libertarian perspective. Uh, things that I went through with healthcare and, and various things like that, and to, to, to personalize it so that, that people can relate to us as people, and somewhere in there underneath is, is, is a story about economics and public policy and sort of the, the logic of, of liberty, but, but I think libertarians make a mistake because we, we always sort of lead with 
spreadsheets and, and numbers and facts and figures and downward sloping demand curves. And normal people, unlike weirdos like me, don't process information that way. So we t we're going to tell some stories and, and hopefully show that, that liberty is not just efficient, it's not just a better way to lift people out of poverty, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that does seem to be the difference between progressives and then people on our side, like uh, you know libertarians and then conservatives as well, is that one side is very much focused on the economic side and then the progressives get to run away with telling the personal stories and telling the moral side, but we have the moral side. Like you say, like choice is a beautiful thing. You know, the, I love to quote uh, our newest congresswoman in the U.S., Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, who is a self-described democratic socialist. And she got into this debate with Anderson Cooper on CNN where she said, and, and was mocked for it, but she said it's more important to be morally right than factually correct. And, and yes, the facts matter, but maybe in terms of persuasion, she's right and we're wrong because, you know, we, we need to lead with, with that, that moral case for liberty and, and to personalize in a way. When I hang out with my progressive friends and they're talking about health care, they don't talk about policy. They talk about a mom who's trying to get health care for her child. And sort of at the end, they tack on, that's why we need to socialize medicine. But it's not a policy argument. It's, a, it's an emotional argument. Um, we forget to tell that sometimes because the whole reason we argue about health care policy is that we would like for more people to have access to better treatments at a lower cost so that people live longer and live, and live happier lives. We always forget to say that part, and, and I wish we would. Yeah, exactly. So to bring it to the specific of the mum with healthcare, like if you inject a free market thing, it, people are competing to make sure they get her business, the costs go lower, the services get better, but it's where it's socialised. I mean, you know, the socialists win that uh, moral argument, but look at what socialised medicine has done in the US and in the UK. There's so much waiting lines. Like, that mum really suffers. Well, to, to, to go back to AOC, if, if we could be both morally right and factually correct... Um, we could win these arguments. So I think we have to combine these two things. The nice thing is we have facts on our side, and I, I think that matters, but it doesn't matter until people believe that you're actually trying to solve the same problem that they care about. Absolutely. And this is what I think Free the People do really well, is that you guys are at the cutting edge of using video, using all these, like your, pod, your own podcast to tell these emotional stories. So um, what, how did Free the People get to that uh, level? So we, you know, we started off with just a, a simple idea that, that through technology we could reach a much broader audience, and particularly young people. I, I call them the liberty curious, and, and you know, back when I was a Tea Party organizer, we, we focused on a, a small wedge cadre of people who had a shared set of values and would mobilize and, and impact politics at the margin. I think technology allows us to do almost the opposite, which is to reach the public to reach the majority, to reach a lot of people that are, that, are, that are searching and trying to figure out who they are and what they believe in. And of course, the medium to do that is video. It's storytelling. Um, it's everything I was saying before, but, but it has to be visually appealing. It has to be um, sort of fun and engaging. And somewhere in there is, is a lesson about policy, but don't, you know, don't lead with, with facts and figures because people's eyes just roll in the back of their head and, and go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, on the website, Free the People, you describe yourselves as trying to look past the day-to-day -day politics and focus on the big ideas that are going to drive America in the future, which is, you know, what the Institute of Public Affairs, where I'm from, that's what we try to do in Australia. So what are the big issues in America that you see and what are going to be the ones that are going to be still relevant 10, 20 years from now? I really like to focus, and this is very, again, very different than maybe um, traditional free market, conservative, libertarian organizations. Um, that, that focus a lot on 
on sort of what I call economic supply and demand type issues, budget issues, regulatory issues, that kind of thing. I really like what I, what I, what I would call transpartisan issues, issues that resonate um, both on the left and the right, civil liberties, uh, free speech, and, and yes, those economic issues as well, but, but I, I, like, I like metaphors like beer. Beer is a perfect metaphor for entrepreneurship. And you're going to enjoy Australia. Yeah. And, and of course, you get to drink beer while you're talking about beer, which, which is sort of a win-win. But uh, in the United States, we have this, this beer revolution. Like, every young kid is brewing their own beer, and they're really passionate about it, and they, and they think they're just serving their community, and they really, really would love for their neighbors to try this beautiful double IPA, triple hopped, insane thing that they've created. And the first thing you run into is a wall of regulation. The first thing they run into is, is sort of the collusion between big beer producers and government that makes it very difficult for these small entrepreneurs to succeed. Um, it's, I think it's a better way to talk about, about economic regulation without, again, without people thinking, oh, you're just for the big guy. Because, of course, in reality, big guys like regulation because it crowds out competition. Yeah, it's something that we find at the IPA as well, uh, especially with beer. Like, I'm not sure how cross you are with the Australian thing, but uh, in Melbourne, where I'm from especially, it is so hard to buy a beer for less than $10 because there's just so much regulations. Like, whenever any of my friends travel overseas, the first thing they'll always say is, you will not believe how cheap beer is here. And that's when I try and say to them, like, this is a tax thing. Like, it's not anything else other than a tax thing. So, yeah, it is how you get to the hearts and minds of people is through alcohol. You know, I, it, I started talking about beer, and we produced a lot of videos about beer, and it started with an article that I read, I think about three years ago, where Venezuela, the, the one producer, sort of monopoly producer, Cerveceria Polar, could not acquire the ingredients to make beer. So in Venezuela, which used to be the richest country in, in Latin America, you couldn't get a cold beer anymore. And if you're going to go through a socialist hell, you should get a cold one. Yeah, you're going to need to be pretty drunk for it. Yeah, it's, it, seems, it seems the very least you could do is get a cold six-pack. Yeah. Another one of the programs that Free the People are working on at the moment, which I find really interesting, is criminal justice. And I want to make sure I get the extra words right. So the First Step Act is something that you guys have talked about, which I thought was really interesting when I was reading up on it. So do you want to talk about what the First Step Act is and why Free the People have uh, gone in on it? Yeah, so um, in the United States, and I, I think it's a global phenomenon, but it's particularly remarkable in the United States, we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. Um, and, and a good chunk of that population is, is young men of color who have been arrested um, for a nonviolent crime like, like drug possession, drug dealing, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, once you get into the system, it's hard to get out. And, and you turn um, young people that made a, a horrible mistake. They made a mistake, um, but the process by which you could sort of rehabilitate yourself, get out, get a job, get on with your life is very difficult. So you end, you end up with this recidivism, this cycle of, of crime and poverty that we, that, that we lock our young people in. So what, what First Step did is it, it dealt with, um, it, it reduced some of the mandatory minimum penalties which again, should, it's not a very conservative concept that, that Washington, D.C., the central government, is decide, determining for localities, for states, for judges, what the proper punishment is for something, say, like uh, uh, selling marijuana. Um, but we do that, and, so, and quite often the, the mandatory minimums for drug crimes, nonviolent drug crimes, can be worse than, than violent crimes. And that's crazy. 
So First Step did a bunch of things. It dealt with um, recidivism, it dealt with mandatory minimums, and it and also deal, I, I believe it dealt with expungement as well, meaning that once you've done your time, once you've, you've paid your debt to society, um, you should be able to go get a job without constantly being tagged with the fact that, that you were part of the system. Yeah, that's fascinating because um, one thing we found in, in the IPA is that it costs so much for uh, the state to imprison someone and there's so many other effective ways of you know, punishing a crime that don't involve getting someone into prison, having that mark against them for the rest of their lives. And you just think, like, this would be so easy for politicians to do, but no one wants to be seen as doing soft on crime. So is First Step Act being uh, uh, embraced by any politicians? Um, you know, it's funny because because Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian did this, um, and it, that sort of makes greatest photo in history, by the way. Yeah, and it you know it makes people on the head uh, the, on the left their heads explode. Um, a guy named Van Jones, who was a leftist community organizer, was part of this. So this is one of those transpartisan issues where where honest liberals, honest conservatives can actually come together because because it might be a social justice issue if you're from the left, but it also might be a fiscal responsibility issue if you're from the right. We spend an insane amount of money um, keeping people in cages. And, and, you know, from a libertarian's perspective, I would go an even step further. You know, we have this phrase, pay your debt to society. Um, and that's never exactly made sense to me because there is a perpetrator and a victim. And I think, I think criminal justice should be about making victims whole and rehabilitating perpetrators so that they can become a responsible member of society again. That, that should be the point of the criminal justice system. But just putting particularly nonviolent criminals in cages creates a cycle that does, doesn't make sense left, right or center. Right. Uh, now, a lot of our listeners would know you from your book. Um, sorry, again, I want to get make sure I get the title right because it's so good. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. A libertarian manifesto. Now, uh, what was your reaction to the book? And uh, did you uh, like? I mean, why is that such a hard topic for other people to get their heads around? Because it's, it's on paper, it is just perfect. You know, it was it was really intended to translate sort of classical liberal philosophy from Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments to today. And, you know, I feel like our side, we're always giving somebody a white paper or a 700-page book and say, read this and you'll understand what I'm thinking about. But when you really break it down, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, that's what your mom taught you. And she stole it from her mom. And these are... She took it. <laughs> she broke their own rule. And, um, you know, Hayek always talked about sort of the spontaneous evolution of the common law. And it really comes down to rules that human beings have worked out over over hundreds and even thousands of years, uh, maybe originating with the English common law, some of the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. And it, sh it should be quite simple. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Take responsibility. Mind your own business. Uh, work. Th these are things that I think are human values. They're not necessarily conservative values or liberal values. And, and I think there could be broad consensus around that. But if we don't translate it into basic English, I don't know how we connect with people who think that conservatives and classical liberals and libertarians don't give a damn about anybody but themselves. Or big business. Yeah, and, and big business, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Free the People, you work with so many young people, like you're at the cutting edge, like your Facebook page as well, there's a whole lot of young people in the comments, so uh, you'd be the best person to talk about this. Like, are we winning the war for the hearts and minds of the uninitiated into politics? Like, are you hopeful about the next generation? Yeah, I mean, 
I always joke that we did this very careful economic study and discovered that young people live longer than old people, so it's it's probably better to invest in them. But but I think there's something true about about you know at a certain age you've kind of made up your mind and you're sort of locked into the views that you have. But young people, particularly today, because particularly because of the democratization of social media, they're they're searching. They're trying to figure stuff out. And you know in in the American context. You know, they're told that, that you either have to be a Republican or a Democrat. They're told that um, you either have to choose between democratic socialism, which has this, this beautiful halo around it, or you're a fascist, fascist, or you're a Nazi. And these are, these are false choices. This is not how we make decisions. And, of course, it's contrary to how they, they, they live in the world because they curate everything. They curate their music, their friends, their communities. Uh, they, they swim through infinite choices of social media online. They find their own information and knowledge. And if we can tap into that ethos and, and the medium, you know, the video and, and the technology and let them opt into a conversation instead of telling them what to think, I, I think we have a better story to tell young people. But, but we, have to, we have to listen, I think, before we start talking. And, and that's one thing that, that we're not always great at. We, th- we, think, we think we know everything and we love to sort of talk at people about what's right and wrong and how economics works. But... But listening and having a little faith in the wisdom of crowds, that, that's the future. All right, brilliant. Matt Kibbe, uh, Free the People, go out and get the books, and your podcast is Kibbe on Liberty. Yep, brilliant. And, uh, yeah, just go out and listen to this guy's stuff because it is brilliant. All right, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, sir. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show Kurt Wallace, Research Fellow here at the IPA, another meeting of the Hay Team. Uh, you were on pretty recently, though, so, you know, that's uh, good. Yep. Bit of nepotism. Uh, yeah, bit of nepotism. We get our favorites in. So let's talk about it because you had a big report last week on the idea of regulatory dark matter, which I think is like an original phrase coined by us. So do you want to tell us what regulatory dark matter is? Uh, so I was building off um, some work done by the Competitive Enterprise Institute in America where he uh, where they've uh, used the phrase regulatory dark matter. Mm. Did you do any uh, research for this interview? I, look, I just, when I hear a phrase, I think that Kurt coined it. He's a smart guy, smarter than me. So I want to make but, sure that Kurt's getting his due respect. Yeah, it's the first time we've like applied to the Australian context and have sort of uh, expanded the definition a bit. So regulatory dark matter is, uh, I've defined it as regulatory action taken by agencies and regulators that uh, receives little scrutiny or democratic accountability. So that includes a lot of like legislative instruments that regulators, um, like the regulations they make and also what's called quasi-regulation, which is a lot of like the guidance material or the stuff they um, publish on their website. Um, which may lack uh, official legal status but has a regulatory effect nonetheless. Uh, So let's talk about – so there's all this regulatory matter that comes in and has all these effects on the Australian economy and we don't exactly get to vote on it or not. So why – uh, what is the accountability that this has? Are there any departments that can look at it and remove these things that it's just, just sort of build up in the darkness? So a lot of like the, uh, the regulations made by regulators has a review process in the parliament, but um, I've looked at like the, the review that the Senate has like a review committee on regulation, but like practically there's very little uh, oversight going on to, to see what these regulators are actually doing in terms of uh, the, the red tape burden that they're um, levying on on the regulated bodies and individuals. So there's a lot of um, yeah, there's a lot of room there for the regulators to sort of make regulations as, as they see fit. And then the other other category of that is then uh, publishing all these guidance materials explaining the regulations, um, which has like another whole layer of interpretation. Um, and another whole layer of, you know, 
if you're a, a business, you need to go read all those materials on the website to, to sort of see what the regulators are, what they're thinking and how they're interpreting these regulations. So there's a lot of uh, power given to the regulators by Parliament that sort of goes unchecked. So you've written regulators in the report, you've written regulators amplify the regulatory effect of legislation. Why don't you talk us through that ampl amplification? Yeah, effect. so uh, in the report, I sort of look at five agencies uh, in the financial and banking sectors. So, um, and the the total page count that I came to for the regulatory dark matter was 76,000 uh, pages. So, Did you get one of the interns to do that? Is that uh, no, I took a bit of manual uh, counting of pages there. But um, so that's... So what makes that interesting is that this is built on, I think it was like uh, yeah, nine, nine and a half thousand pages of enabling re legislation that's actually passed by Parliament. So that regulatory dark matter that's le levied by regulators is eight times the amount that was um, that of the pages that enabled those regulators to exist in the first place by, that's actually passed Parliament. So um, there's a big amplification going on there uh, from the regulators. So the thing that hits me with this is that it really hurts new businesses from becoming bigger because there's just so many regulations that need to be upheld. There's so many pages of, uh, you were saying how, like the pages that explain the regulations, they also need to be followed. For a small business, that becomes almost impossible. It's only the big firms that can actually send people out to do all this stuff. So really it's hurting all these new businesses and you know the the way that economies build is through new businesses overtaking old ones. So it's really hurting us through that. Yeah, definitely. Like if you're a small business, you don't have the resources to, to hire a you know legal team or to hire someone to go through and make sure that you're complying with, you know, pages and pages and pages of legislation and, and, and regulation. So there's a huge burden there on smaller businesses who are trying to compete with incumbent larger business. And also you have the, the, the problem of like all this uh, regulation being um, designed by the big players in the market, sort of, uh, you know, protecting their own business interests, um, you know, against innovative smaller firms, which are crucial to a well-functioning economy. So obviously one of the questions we often ask on this podcast, why should young people care about this? Well, um, we have recent um, survey, I think it was a couple of years ago, the IPA did uh, show that 60% of uh, young Australians are interested in starting their own business. And one of the, the big barriers to starting a business is the red tape burden. So if you're one of those people who, who want to start a business one day, then um, yeah, it's really important that you don't you know, have your, your dream shot down by you know, having to compile with you know, pages and pages of legisl legislation and regulation, which stops you from, from starting your own business. And obviously employment as well? Yeah, so it's uh, this is a huge engine for for employment as well, um, because you know it's the people who actually start their own businesses who who, who are the ones who create jobs. So um, yeah, we want to remove all the things that that stop people from creating jobs. Yeah, cool. Sorry, uh, the report is regulatory dark matter. So head on over to ipa.org.au. Let's talk about another thing that's holding uh, like a barrier for young people, which is housing affordability at the moment is a huge problem in Australia, especially for young people who are hoping to buy their first house. And you spoke to the Daily Mail today about stamp tax and the problems that uh, come up with that. So what uh, what other problems are stamp taxes are uh, is having? Yeah, so the stamp duty is like a, it's an stamp additional duty. yeah stamp duty is a tax. I've made that mistake four times off air and now once on air. One day I will get this right, but yes, continue. So, so it's a tax uh, effectively on um, when you sell your house or you you buy a house, you have to pay the additional stamp duty on top of that. So, um, it creates a wedge in the market between what the buyer pays and what the um, 
the seller receives. So this is a distortionary tax which um, restricts the amount of trading that's going on in the housing market. So obviously if you're a, um, a young person who's trying to you know, get into the housing market, this is something that's restricting the amount of housing available to you. So it's something that's inflating the, the price of housing and also restricting the number of houses that go up for sale. So um, this is a you know, distorting tax that has, you know, very big repercussions for young people trying to enter the market. So what, let's call stamp duty. What is the justification for it? Why was it invented in the first place? So stamp duty is sort of, well, the, how it currently um, acts is it's a, it's a state government uh, levied tax, which is sort of, you know, a big source of revenue for, for state governments. So um, state governments have a, a big interest in keeping uh, stamp duty going because it's a big, um, uh, you know, boost the, the purse of the state government. So that's sort of what, what keeps it going. But it, it is an incredibly inefficient tax in terms of when you compare it to other taxes and it's very distortionary in that regard. But I think we have a problem where because the state governments are relying on it for revenue, um, sort of yeah, it creates a bias towards these inefficient taxes. Yeah, so how do we uh, undo it? I know there was a lot in the Daily Mail, Daily Mail article talking about uh, different ways of approaching GST distribution. Yeah, so... The, the best thing to do would be to open up like the tax uh, revenues from more efficient taxes such as the GST um, to the state to the state so at the moment we have a very inequitable system where um, the the federal government levies the GST sets the GST at a constant rate and then distributes it um, to the states but it's not going towards the states that you know where the money's coming from so I think uh, Western Australia has traditionally always had a very bad deal. Um, from that distribution. So what would be better would be if state governments had the power to, to set GST, so we'd have uh, competition in GST levels across the states. So you might have some states who want to have a lower rate of GST to attract um, people and, and business to their, to their state, but also have it so that um, the revenue from GST is strictly tied to where it's being collected. So if GST is being paid in Victoria, it goes to the Victorian government. So, Kurt, obviously, Kurt's a new dad as well. Tell us about how that's going. Little Ezra, how old now? Uh, six months now, so he's doing very well. Um, starting to roll over and, yeah, work work that out, not just rolling over and getting stuck. So It is hard. <laughs> it is so hard to get your head around. Small steps, I only got so. it two weeks ago, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. All right, cool. So, Kurt, uh, report is regulatory dark matter, available at ipa.org.au. You can also go to the Daily Mail to read Kurt's thoughts about the housing affordability problem and stamp duty. Did I get it right that time? Yep. Good. Yep. All right, sweet. Uh, Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thank you to Mystery Guest and Kurt Wallace uh, for those very interesting interviews. Uh, all the things that we had with Mystery Guest were mm. fantastic. Yep. Um, and all Matt Kibbe. He has not got back to me yet. He's not got back to me either. Uh, Burjo, 1-800-Burjo. Has he got, got in contact Unfortunately with not, the no. Burjo hotline? Yeah. Right, Matt Kibbe was good as well. Matt Kibbe was. That was if interview. you listen to the Matt Kibbe one, you will agree that that was very good. All right. All right. Uh, let's get into some stories that have made us laugh this week, Pete. And yeah. I think we want to start off uh, talking about some sugar taxes. That's right. So everyone can relax because sugar taxes don't work. That's not me talking, James. That's yep. Fatima Coney, Cody Stanford from Harvard. Yep. Harvard Medical School. Yep. Okay, so, so let's, she knows let's what just she... pause the show to give our listeners a chance to open up a big bag of Doritos and yep. go to town. It's the, ta- the taxes don't work. The taxes don't Doesn't work. Doesn't mean that the sugar's good for you. So when you said, <laughs> when, you, when, I, when you told me that sugar was good for me, yeah. you were lying. I think I got, got our wires crossed, but yeah, the Fatima's from Harvard, so she knows what she's talking about. She has said during the week uh, to uh, a radio show on the ABC about this issue that while reducing sugar may be good for overall health, public health advocates concede that as a single mes- measure... Won't have a big impact. Mm. 
uh, an international obesity expert says Australian health advocates should dump their push for a sugar tax. So that's it. I assume um, they'll all listen to that and it'll be done. Yeah, because I think Fatima is approaching it from the wrong angle, which is she's looking at whether or not sugar taxes work on reducing people's intake of sugar, yeah. whereas I think most people approach sugar taxes from do they bring in more money for the government. That's right. So I think she's just... Like, like when I thought that you told me that sugar was good, mm. I think she's just got the brief a little wrong. She there. probably just hasn't understood the issue uh, correctly. Yeah. But yeah, no, look, that should be good. If they do bring in a sugar tax, I do look forward to sugar being a bit like ciggies. You know, there's all these cheap ciggies on the market that have yeah. fallen off the... Chop, chop. Yeah, oh, build your own Doritos. I can't wait to see what well, the sugar example... You've got to roll is. your own whiz fizz, like yeah. uh, fruit tingle lollies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that. So Get it from some milk bar in Braybrook. Yes. Uh, all right. Um, I've got one here. So if, if you're on Twitter, you might be familiar with the Twitter account, The Tweet of God, yep. who is a writer. Uh, he basically just tweets funny things that God would say. Mm-hmm. And most of it's pretty good. So it's not actually God. It's not actually God. Okay. God does not have a Twitter account. This is the tweet of God. He purports to be God. He's not actually God. And do we know who this person is? I, I, I I do, but I can't remember. Okay. I remember like, cause he wrote a musical or something and he wanted to promote it. And he was like, well, I do have this account with millions of followers. Mm. Uh, anyway, so the reason this comes up is because he put out a tweet a while ago. Uh, this font is very small, so bear with me for one second. Uh, if He tweeted out, if gay people are a mistake, they are a mistake I've made hundreds of millions of times, which proves I'm incompetent and I shouldn't be relied upon for anything. Mm-hmm. Pretty good joke. Uh, that got him suspended from Twitter. Okay. That got him actually, like, the Twitter account was suspended. Yeah, real hatred there yeah. with that comment. Uh, citing uh, that uh, you may not promote violence against, threaten, or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. A lot of stuff in There's there. There's a lot of stuff in there. I don't know if he covered all of them. How Otherwise, did- that is a very effect, like, for t- uh, word per marginalized group harmed. Yeah. That is an effective tweet. I don't understand how Twitter is such a nasty cesspit. Given yeah, exactly. It's be nice. All right. So Twitter then looked into it and realized that uh, the tweet of God was funny and, mm-hmm. you know, slightly leans left wing for sure. And yeah. they uh, let him back on. Well, who's it offending? God yeah. lovers or gay people? I oh, like neither, obviously. Well, but. Neither. But, uh, you know, one one group at least got involved with that. So yeah. bring it to Twitter's attention. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he got, uh, he's got, he got his account locked. It's now overturned, but uh, it's just funny that these... You know, everyone thought, oh, it's only Alex Jones, it's only Louis Farrakhan, it's only yep. the Stephen Crowder, it's only these wild people. Yep. Nah, Twitter it's, God. Uh, yeah, yeah, Twitter God as well. And I think, look, an algorithm can't do this. You, yep. can't, you can't use an algorithm to work this stuff out. Yeah. And you can't do it with human people because there's just so much crap on it. Uh, so just let it go. Yeah. Open slather. Yeah, you're a platform, not a publisher. Let, that's, did you think of that? Uh, well, Surely it's not. basically <laughs> like... Just, just I thought it, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But it's, just, look, just let freedom run. Yes. Uh, all right. So that's that. Um, hopefully we see a few less of these things, but mm. I doubt it. Uh, Pete, we should have led the show off with this next one. Well, I, look, I think we should. We if, talked about free speech. We talked about Hong Kong. We talked about fan behavior. Yeah. That is all for naught if we can't defend Grunt the Pig. Well, we said let freedom reign. What about freedom for Grunt the Pig? He's going to be fined. His owner probably is going to be fined. $806 specifically is the, is the fine from Wangaratta Council. Uh, if he continues to walk in public land, 806 bucks is the cost of freedom these days, James. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Wangaratta Council issued Matthew Evans with a cease and desist notice. Uh, Mr. Evans argues that whilst Grunt might be big, he's harmless. He's, so- let me get this right. So you've got Grunt the Pig going mm. for walks just to go about his day. Mm, just going about his day. Going about his day and that's what's getting fined. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
He's, Mr. Evans says he's really slow. He's just a general all-round big baby. He needs about an hour a day or else he gets cranky and starts crying. So Wangaratta Mayor... I mean, don't, aren't we all Grant the Pig? Yeah. There's a little bit of Grant the Pig than all of us. Yeah. Uh, look, we all just need a bit of time. Wangaratta Mayor Dean Rees said that the council was responding to a couple, in quotation marks, of complaints. Yeah, right. You're responding to one yep. from like, you know, Betty who's annoying and complains about everything. What well, did you see the specific complaint that was made which said that Grunt the Pig ate uh, a child's food? Yeah. Now, if that's not the highlight of that child's day slash week slash month slash yeah. year that a pig came over and ate the food. Yeah. I mean, that's a childhood foundational moment right there. Oh, look, and you're saying that that's a reason that the pig should be locked indoors? That, that child will talk about that forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. And it, like, and Matt Evans, the owner, says that didn't happen. Actually, kids feed it all the time. And, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a wonderful community um, pig. <laughs> and the mayor, the mayor said, hey, I love Grunt the Pig. Yeah. Like, I've met Grunt the Pig. It's not, about, it's not personal. Oh, it is personal. But it, but it has become personal. It has become personal. Anyway, so we'll keep you updated on that. Hopefully, Grunt will be set free. Uh, I actually like want to ask you. So you pointed out that the fine is eight hundred and six dollars. Mm. What do you reckon that six is? Oh, uh, it'd just be like linked to the CPI. <laughs> you yeah, know. It's cost of the paper to fine you with. Yeah, <laughs> including postal costs. Yeah, like the, the the union that ha- that employs the public service workers. Yep. has you know whacked another one percent on. Yeah, that's disgusting. It's the six bucks that it's, gets you. It's the most interesting part of it. It's not eight hundred dollars. It is eight hundred and six dollars. Yeah. Anyway, uh, good luck to Grunt the pig. Uh, hopefully, many more walks are ahead of you. Yeah, look, Grunt Grunt is is doing this for all of us. So yes. let's get behind him. All right, uh, Pete. You also saw one of your favorite rock stars. Mm come out and say some pretty interesting things. Yeah, look, it's always good because you always assume celebrities are left-wing, right? So yep. when someone that you really admire comes out and proves that maybe they're not as left-wing as you thought, it's great. Mm-hmm. I'm a massive Oasis fan. Noel Gallagher is the genius behind Oasis. And he came out during the week. And just like that, we've ruined our chances of ever getting Liam Gallagher on the phone. <laughs> Liam is also a genius. Yep. And, um, you know, we'd love to get him as well, but I don't think he would do it. Anyway, during the week, Noel Gallagher had this interview where he says that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is a lunatic and branded him an effing student debater, effing Captain Fishy Craggy Old Effing Donkey F off. Do you reckon he said effing or do you reckon he said something else? He said the magic word oh, right, okay. a few times. So uh, I was thinking that's a rare show of restraint from Noel Gallagher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, he said, that, he said the real word. He's, he's, a, he's a real man. He's not like me bowing to the man. Uh, anyway, he also called Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott, who is a friend of the podcast in the sense that we often talk about her. Um, a lot of good content out of Diane. <laughs> he said she's the face of effing buffoonery. And he said, they talk pipe-smoking communist nonsense, Do You Know What I Mean, which is an album. I think the whole – no, a song. I think – I'm not sure anyway. I think the role of any politician in the world is to be forward-thinking and modern and contemporary-looking. And so that's good. He said he talked about how, you know, Labor's lost the plot and should be more third wave because he was a big Tony Blair fan, which is a little bit better than what they are now. He said, if you don't like Brexit, uh, if you weren't happy with the results of the democratic effing process, then move to North Korea. Yeah, so he's telling them all, don't look back in anger. <laughs> how long have you been yeah, still? A that? long time. <laughs> a long time. Oh, Pete, shut up. So I can but yeah, the Brexit stuff is the interesting thing yeah. because, you know, um, it, that, like that's the central point, central mm. point for us, which is even if you didn't like the result of the... Uh, election, mm. it's now the, the second wave of, oh, we need another referendum, the, you yeah. know, the one that will win. That's the one we need. Yeah, so he's he's pro-Brexit. He thinks they should... No, sorry, he's pro-Remain. Like he's he, definitely not pro-Brexit. He thinks <laughs> they should stay, but he said, we've had the thing, if you don't like it, move to North Korea. Yep. Might not realise that North Korea is also not in the EU, but um, that's his thing. And he says, and he has this good quote about Great Britain from the rest of the world. He said, you know, as he said, we're too effing brilliant. There's a lot of effing great things going on in this country. 
I don't think we leave, we go into the abyss. It's just sad that people are so divided now. So I think he knows that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And, and uh, he's just saying to everyone, roll with it. That's right. And <laughs> oh. These are just, I, I wrote this thinking, these are the worst jokes I'll ever say on this show. Yeah, and you I just did? knew that two for two, yep. uh, Peter Gregory was going to go for them. You said they were two stinkers, but you like stinkers. And I was like, no, I don't. But obviously yeah, I do. We've got filmed evidence that you enjoy a good stinker. Yeah. And Liam Gallagher, who's Noel's adversary and brother, said if you didn't vote, because he didn't vote Noel Gallagher. Yeah. If you don't vote, you don't get an opinion. Sit down, Dolly Gallagher. Yeah. Comparing so this, him to Dolly Parton. Yeah. So this does confirm. Once and for all, which one is the better brother? For us. Um, yeah. We're yeah, Team yeah. Noel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've always thought Team Noel's, uh, Noel's better. He wrote yeah. all the songs. He did. Although, Liam, I mean, they needed each other, didn't they? That's it. They <laughs> and were, that's rock, isn't it? That, that is, is rock. rock. <laughs> all right. Uh, I got one. <laughs> we know rock and roll. Like, we know rock and yeah, roll. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. You all good with that? You got. No, nah, I'm done. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, all right. So, I've got one final one here, which is a celebrity on the other side of things. So, mm-hmm. Rob Reiner, who is a comedy god. Like, this yeah. guy. Is fantastic. Yeah. And I, it pains me to make fun of him. Oh, okay. But I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he had an all-time tweet. I didn't realize you liked him. Oh, yeah. I, this guy, God. Um, spinal tap. Get around it. Uh, so, Rob Reiner uh, tweeted out on the 16th of June, I'm in Sedona where my daughter will be giving a photographic presentation. And although it's beautiful and quite spiritual here, my mind can't escape the ugliness and horror that is our president. For the preservation of democracy and our national sanity, hashtag impeach Trump now. Let it go, Rob. Just, just, you know, don't tweet that. Just, just trying to... You just said it. You're in Sedona. It's beautiful. You're having a great father-daughter moment. Spending time with his child. But it's like, honey, I can't look at your photos right now. I'm being part of the resistance. I reckon Rob has got to live his best life. Yeah. As um, the kids say. Or, so there's that. But then I started to think maybe he's onto something here, which is maybe he doesn't <laughs> want... Like, you know... The idea being that we're all signed up for family commitments sometimes that we don't exactly want to do. I'm not mm. saying that Rob Reiner didn't want to be in Sedona seeing his daughter's photographic presentation. Okay. Hypothetically, if he wasn't, and he was kind of giving away the game that he didn't want to be there, mm. if you just blame the fact that you were thinking about Trump, yeah. you suddenly, it's like, oh, did you not like my artwork? It's like, no, nah, I'm just... I'm just thinking about Trump. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the orange oh, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Focused on focused on that. Yeah. Maybe it's an excuse and then just to really double down, you thought I'll tweet it out. Then yeah. you definitely know I wasn't. Yeah, uh, but like I'm up. just saying, like, you know, if Christmas comes up and you get the present from a relative you didn't really want mm. and that you want they aren't you know, you unveil it and they can see your thing, you're just like I'm just thinking about that wall. Mm. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's what you do. He cut taxes too much. Yes, exactly. All right, uh, that is it for the show this week. All right, thank you to Matt Kibby and thank you to Kurt Wallace as well. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening and downloading. So once again, we're available on YouTube. You can go listen to us through there and watch us if, uh, for some reason, that's what how you <laughs> want to consume. You want to torture yourself? <laughs> if you really want to, if you really want to be in the weeds with us, that's where you go mm. to do it. Uh, and a make couple sh- of chumps. <laughs> couple of absolute boobines. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, where was I? Sorry. Yeah. If you are... <laughs> this is why you can't film stuff. That, this, uh, this glass is... <laughs> no. This glass is spilled. We were doing so well. So, Peter Gregory just spilled water all over For those listening and not watching. So that's a good way to send people to our YouTube channel. Because, yeah. like, for audio people, they don't know what just happened. But yeah. I know. And all of our YouTube fans know that Peter Gregory cannot successfully drink a glass of water. Uh, all right. So, uh, if you still... Even in spite of that, if you still want to remain listening to us yeah. through traditional audio formats, uh, make sure you're uh, telling your friends and family to also download the show. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts or iTunes, 
uh, leave us that five-star review because it helps people uh, come to the show, helps us climb up the rankings, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you like the show, if you like what Kurt was talking about, if you like the other things that the IPA does, you know, Matthew Letter's great work on freedom of speech on campus, yep. make sure you're going to ipa.org.au slash join to become a member if you're not already, if you are not already one. Uh, we've got three membership packages available. So you can sign up there. And if you are already a member, make sure you go to there to donate if you want to donate to the IPA uh, with tax deductible. Oh, what is it? End of financial year. I'm young. I don't need to know these things for another couple of years. Uh, end, of financial year, <laughs> end of financial year is coming up. You can make a tax deductible donation to the IPA to support the IPA's research as well. Cool. Right, cool. First YouTube channel, like first YouTube show, f- official YouTube show mm. in the books. How does it feel? Uh, good. Yep. Ready to sign off. <laughs> See you guys next week. See ya.